0: It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post.
1: Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahi Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 27th. Today, why Biden may not be able to fire Trump appointees. Plus, the new senator from California and what the federal mask mandate means for you.
2: As President Biden is setting up his new administration and having Senate hearings for his nominees to run the federal agencies, he's running into this problem that is an issue really at the end of any administration, but is much more pronounced under Trump. Lisa Ryan covers the federal government for The Post.
1: She's been reporting on the Trump holdovers that have stayed on, even though Trump is no longer president.
2: It's colloquially called borrowing, but this is a strategy that political appointees use to convert their political jobs to career jobs in the federal civil service. It might have been the same job they had as a political appointee or an entirely different job altogether. Sometimes they're qualified for the job, sometimes they're not, but this is something that Biden is confronting because it is happening at the end of the Trump administration much more than it did at the end of the Obama administration.
1: And why is that a problem for Biden?
2: As everyone knows, this has been a very tumultuous transition. And now that President Biden is in office, he and his team are are finding that lots of things in the federal government are amiss. And obviously the President is, you know, doing an enormous job overturning former President Trump's policies. But what we have are loyalists to President Trump who many of whom, not all, but many of whom are at very, very senior levels of the government. And the concern is really twofold. One is just more on the matter of principle, which is that you don't want people who were hired in the first place for their partisan beliefs to be serving in what are apolitical, nonpartisan roles in the government, which is what the federal government basically is. And then secondly, the concern at various agencies is that some of these folks might be working to undermine Biden's agenda.
1: And what what positions are we talking about of high profile individuals that Biden would like to replace or is trying to replace?
2: Sure. So we have people in a range of positions and and also there are going to be, you know, many people who, to use the term, borrowed in uh, in December and the first three weeks of January that we don't really have any documentation on. So it'll be really fascinating to see who those people end up being. But basically you have someone, for example, who was a political appointee at OSHA, the Occupational Safe and Health Administration, who borrowed into a job on a panel that basically hears appeals from workplaces of fines that were issued for workplace violations. We have a chief immigration judge at Justice who is setting policy, or at least was before Biden came in, on some of President Trump's you know, most controversial immigration policies, that person had previously worked as a political appointee at the Department of Homeland Security. So you get a sense that not all of these jobs, but many of them are very high profile.
1: I'm interested in understanding more why this is at odds with how things are normally done. Because to me, it seems like even when there is a change in who the president is, that doesn't mean that everyone who works for the federal government is suddenly fired or thrown out of their jobs and that you have an entire change in staff. So what is it about these particular holdovers that make them different or problematic in terms of how things are usually done?
2: The government is run in this in this way that might seem very odd, you know, to people who don't follow government or work inside the government. But you have a permanent civil service we call the bureaucracy. Of course, Donald Trump called it the deep state. But you have people who get jobs in government. The whole idea is that they serve taxpayers and they're experts in their subject. So this might be a post office worker, uh, it might be, you know, an inspector uh, for the Environmental Protection Agency, and they're supposed to just carry out their jobs like the experts that they are without mm. without a nod to politics. That's not how they got their jobs. They got their jobs because they were the most qualified. And then you have political appointees who come in with an administration and leave at the end of an administration But the idea is when a new administration comes in, you want those people who were partisans, you want them out of government because they don't represent the values of the new president.
1: So then if some of these individuals have been what you're describing as burrowed, where they're basically converted from being political appointees to being, quote unquote, like career officials or career members of the government, Does that like prevent Biden from firing them? Like, can he he's still the president, right? Can he just go and say, I don't like you and what you stand for. And I think that you were doing things that I don't agree with under the previous president. And I want you gone.
2: Sure. So that's where things get really thorny. If you are hired into the government, you generally have a probation period of a year. If you're at the Defense Department, that probation period is two years. Now, Trump, as did all previous presidents, Trump has had uh, these people borrowing in. You know, more or less his entire term. It's just that it really, really speeds up when someone is about to leave office. So it's possible that some of these folks have reached the one year mark. It's possible some haven't. If they haven't, they could be fired without cause. But if they have, it's more complicated and they have rights to due process since they are career members of the government. We've seen already a really interesting scenario unfold with a very high profile appointee named Michael Ellis, who my colleague Ellen Nakashima has written a number of stories about in recent weeks. He was involved in the Trump White House, involved in some very controversial policies, uh, including the Ukraine matter that Trump was eventually impeached for. And then he was hired just a few months ago as the general counsel of the National uh, Security Agency. And the general counsel, at that agency is a career job. So there was a lot of controversy over this and the head of the NSA did not want to install him in the job knowing that Biden was going to be coming in. Uh, The Pentagon chiefs who were loyal to Trump tried to force him to do it. A couple of days before Biden was inaugurated, Ellis was placed in the job. But then within hours of his inauguration, of Biden's inauguration, the NSA chief uh, put him on paid administrative leave Mm. while his hiring is investigated. So it's also possible, I wanted to add, I know this is real uh, civil service law trivia, but (laughs) when you're hired into a job like this, and like these people have been, usually the job must be competed, meaning that you're hired on merit and you compete and you're the best candidate. It's possible, although we don't know this yet, that some of these people whose jobs were converted to career jobs, some of these appointees may not have had their positions competed properly, in which case that would be a violation of the law and they could they could be fired.
1: You know, it feels like in the last few weeks we've had so many conversations about how quickly President Biden will be able to reverse or turn around or oppose so many of the things that President Trump put into place. What we're seeing is that this is one of those situations of like turning a ship around where it actually takes a long time. And I'm wondering if you see this issue, these individuals who have stayed on past the Trump administration as just one example of how the legacy of Trump will carry on well into the Biden administration.
2: Sure, I think it's it's really true that that that's the case. I mean, we're not really talking so much about different policies because of course Trump had his conservative policies Biden has his more liberal ones and that's just the way our democracy works but I think what we're more talking about is you know the institutions of government that the Trump administration really didn't care much for and the administration was very open about how they didn't trust the bureaucracy they called it the deep state they really wanted to undermine so much about the functions of government, there's been a lot of destruction just of, you know, of morale among civil servants for sure. But also not to say that all civil servants are Democrats. They're not. But it's just more that the respect for civil servants has has really eroded in the last four years. And you also have agencies that have lost um, hundreds of, of people, many of them career experts in their field, scientists, climate scientists, So you really do have a government that's kind of um, weak at the knees right now. And also just a lot didn't get done, partly because Trump had so many senior officials in acting roles. There was just a revolving door, people he couldn't get confirmed by the Senate because they were too controversial or they weren't qualified. People who left their jobs and were never, the jobs were never filled. So a whole kind of government of acting people who who really left a lot of the hard work of government uh, undone.
1: Lisa Ryan covers the federal government for the post. When Kamala Harris made history as the first woman and the first woman of color to become vice president, she actually made room for another bit of history, too.
2: Do you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic? That you will bear true faith
1: and California Governor Gavin Newsom appointed I Alex Padilla to replace to Harris in the Senate. And that makes Padilla the state's first Latino senator ever. You will ever.
2: Well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which you are about to enter. So help you God. I do. Congratulations.
3: I think California is an incredibly important state in the context of politics and American government. It's got the largest population. And as the phrase goes, so goes California, so goes the nation. I really wanted to better understand the Latino demographic within our broader national politics, and especially back in California. I was interested in California getting a new senator, but I was very interested to learn more about the Latino community at large in America and all of their nuances and complexities. I'm Arjun Singh, and I'm an audio producer focusing on politics here at The Washington Post.
1: So you've been reporting on this story about Alex Padilla, who was California Secretary of State and has now been appointed to fill Kamala Harris's seat in the Senate. Tell me more about him and what his career has been like up to this moment.
3: So Padilla is originally from Los Angeles and his parents are immigrants from Mexico. Padilla started off as an engineer. He went to MIT and he came back home to start working at Hughes Aircraft. But he actually got into politics because he was activated by a proposition in California called Proposition 187.
2: California's Proposition 187 attempts to solve the state's illegal immigration problem by denying services like education and non-emergency healthcare to illegal immigrants. Proposition 187, the very controversial one in California, which would virtually cut off all public services except emergency medical care to illegal
0: immigrants. For Californians who work hard, pay taxes, and obey the laws, I'm suing to force the federal government to control the border. And I'm working to deny state services
3: to illegal immigrants. Enough is enough. Governor Pete Wilson. So that actually did pass by the voters, but it was immediately struck down by federal court as being unconstitutional. But for Padilla and his generation of Latino activists, this was a really galvanizing moment to really get involved and lobby against it. I came home to a political environment, including the governor of California at the time, telling me the state's going downhill and it's the fault of people like my parents. But it was the fault of families and communities like mine. And I was enraged, I was insulted, and I knew right away that, you know, I needed to get engaged politically in order to change that trajectory. And so that's when, you know, my life took that turn.
1: So how did things progress for him after Prop 187?
3: So after that, he ends up becoming an assistant for Dianne Feinstein. He starts working on local elections and he eventually runs for the Los Angeles City Council, serves in the California State Senate. And then he goes to where he was just before he became the senator from California, which was the 32nd secretary of state.
1: And what was his reputation at that point and why was he chosen to replace Harris?
3: I think that this was an acknowledgement of the influence that Latinos have had on California politics, but also their role in creating the culture of the state, the economy of the state. And then also outside of that, there was a strong personal relationship between Newsom and Padilla. When I spoke with Amanda Renteria, who is the national political director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential run, she said that Alex Padilla is the kind of person who will go out and he will knock on doors. Before he became Secretary of State, he led the way on the phase out of plastic bags within California, something that was approved by voters in a later referendum. Now, that is not to say that he's without controversy. Most recently, he was in a little bit of hot water because he hired a firm known as SKD Knickerbocker. To run a statewide voter education campaign called Vote Safe California that ended up costing $35 million. There is some debate over whether he, in his role as Secretary of State, actually had the authority to authorize that, and the bill is still left unpaid.
1: I've heard people point to Padilla's appointment and, and basically say, well, he's there because he reflects the Latino demographic of California. But do you think it's as simple as that, or is it more complicated?
3: I think to say that this is sort of just catering to the Latino community is a bit of an oversimplification of the significance of a state like California having a Latino senator. So California is 40 percent Latino, and that's not insignificant. And I think that we need to look at it in that context. You know, everyone I spoke to in reporting this piece said the same phrase, representation matters. So it was an acknowledgement that there was lobbying on that, but I think it was more of an acknowledgement to the role Latinos play within California.
1: When people talk about the idea that representation matters, like what does that actually mean or how does that play out in the real world?
3: So I had a really great conversation with Amanda Renteria, and she told me a really interesting story of when she was working in the Senate. She was the first Latina chief of staff in the Senate, and they were working on the Affordable Care Act, and she walked into a meeting, and someone asked her genuinely, where do immigrants get their health care?
2: Just the fact that people looked around the room and were wondering, right, as a daughter of an immigrant, <laughs> you, you know, you sort of looked around the room, too, and said, wait, we don't know this.
3: And when I spoke with Chuck Roca about the same question, why does representation matter? And it's as simple as having someone who's cognizant of it and who is thinking about if I'm creating my staff, who do I want to have in here and who do I want to be able to put in here? And even past that. Representation matters because there's some things that I think you can really only get through perspective.
1: And I'm curious about what kind of things Padilla will want to work on. What does he care about and what are his goals?
3: Yeah, so when we spoke, he did say the first priority is going to be the coronavirus. But after that, he's very engaged in climate change. I also think that election security is going to be a priority. We talked a little bit about his reaction to the efforts to overturn the election and particularly the support that it had from Republican senators. So he, as secretary of state, has been involved with election security firsthand. And he said that Democrats should not be unafraid to call out their Republican colleagues when they see misleading comments.
1: So it sounds like to me and how you're describing Padilla and what he cares about and what he plans to do as a senator, that it really illustrates, for lack of a better term, like intersectionality that we're seeing in terms of political issues and who cares about them?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I think it very much does inform his passion to work on climate change because California and climate change are always going to be linked with each other. First, we have the wildfires that are ripping through the state. There's always the persistent threat of an earthquake. But Los Angeles and San Francisco, its two biggest cities, are both coastal cities, and very much in danger of rising sea levels and the really negative impacts of climate change. And even more so for the Latino community in California, a lot of the Latino community is concentrated in the Central Valley in Los Angeles. And the agricultural economy, which is critical to the state, but also to the Latino workforce, a lot of whom staff those farms, climate change is going to have a really, really harsh impact on those farms and its agricultural economy if it's not dealt with. And I think that's absolutely something that motivates Padilla. And that's a reason you see him pushing for climate change legislation. He understands that it's important to a state, but also to the community at large.
1: For the people that you spoke to, what was their reaction to Padilla's appointment?
3: Everyone I spoke to had very positive feelings about Alex Padilla's ascent to the Senate. Uh, I will say that all of them are Democrats, and so they were excited to have a Latino Democrat going to the Senate. But I think that they were excited for some of the reasons that Gavin Newsom saw in Alex Padilla, that he is this very detail-oriented person, that he works on detail, and that most importantly, he will be able to open up these opportunities for a younger generation of Latinos who want to get involved in politics.
1: Why do you think Padilla's appointment matters in the context of the future of the Senate and the future of the country?
3: So I think it matters in one sense that Padilla is going to be part of a group of new senators who were elected after this era of divisive gridlock, where they were elected on really wanting to do something. And they have a slim majority, and he is going to be part of a group that was not part of the Senate that Mitch McConnell was running. I think in the larger context overall, Alex Padilla is part of a process of what seems to be a rethinking of the American identity. And that is with the Trump era, there was a lot of emphasis placed on race relations and what constitutes an American as nativism was starting to rise up. And even in some corners of the country, white supremacy was starting to rise up. But everyone I talked to Their overwhelming hope was that people start to broaden their idea that Latinos are not just a demographic of first-generation immigrants or immigrants themselves. You know their third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation. They're part of America, and this is not something that's going to go away. This is not a small demographic that is strange and alien to America. They're a group of people that are deeply enmeshed in that. And the hope is that seeing someone like Alex Padilla, just by virtue of going out there and being a senator, that will go at least one step towards helping people understand this is what the American identity now looks like. You know, it is people like Padilla. This is not people from the outside who are coming in. These are people that are part of the bedrock of the United States. And I think that that is something that we'll see from people like Alex Padilla. And hopefully as we go forward, we might be seeing that from more senators that come out there.
1: Arjun Singh is an audio producer focused on politics at The Post. And now, one more thing about President Biden's new mask mandate.
0: This is one of the first things Biden did after coming into office. The very first orders he signed was this order requiring masks to be worn on all federal property. And the first order
2: I'm going to be signing here is, relates to uh, um, COVID. And uh, it's requiring, as I said all along, um, where, where I have authority, mandating masks be worn social distancing be kept on federal property, on interstate commerce, et cetera.
0: And then the day right after that, he signed a second order requiring mass on planes, trains, ships, buses.
2: And I thought with the state of the nation today, is no time to waste, get to work immediately.
0: I'm William One. I'm a national health reporter. People have been talking about doing a national mass mandate since the virus began it's been you know health experts have been calling for it over and over and so this is basically as close as you get to a national mass mandate without actually having one and the reason is there are some questions about whether you know the president even has the authority to do that and any kind of uh, mass mandate that Biden did it probably would have been challenged in court and fought by these anti mass activists they've been doing all these legal challenges And so this is something that kind of, that he has the authority to do because, you know, federal property, he's, you know, the executive head of the entire government, and then interstate travel, federal authorities, you know, you have the power to do that too. So this is as close to a national requirement for masks as he can get. So the first one is federal property. It requires masks to be worn for anyone on federal property. So that would include Capitol Hill, all the agencies in the federal government, the other one that was signed was for interstate travel. So trains, planes, ships, inner-city buses. Um, it requires masks to be worn on all, all those types of transportation. Some of the executive actions I need to sign today are going to help change the course of the COVID crisis. The big question is, how how do you enforce this stuff? The transportation mask order, that's very unclear. You know, it says... You have to wear these on planes and trains, but it doesn't say who is going to enforce this, how strictly they'll do it, and whether like is it going to be fines? Are you going to be put in jail? Um, These orders were very vague, and we kept asking questions of the Biden administration and folks in the agency, and they they kept saying, this is a brand new order. It's going to be up to the agencies to figure out implementation of it, which they're going to do in coming days. But we don't even know when this is going to take effect. The interesting thing to me is we're like a year into this pandemic, and we're still talking about masks and trying to convince people to wear them. And it's just kind of like mind-boggling in, in some ways because we're at this stage where there's these mutations and variants starting to pop up that are very worrisome. We see these shortages of vaccines. And masks are really like the one of the easiest best low-hanging fruits that you can pick when it comes to fighting this virus, like anyone can get them. It's not like the vaccine where there's a shortage, right? And it, it reduces transmission by so much, just dramatically. There's nothing else that really cuts down transmission as easily and quickly as masks. So it's kind of crazy to me, I think, that that's kind of where we are as a country.
1: William One is a health reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We are so thrilled with all the listeners who have decided to become Washington Post subscribers. It is a huge way of supporting us and the work that we do, and it's something that's great for you too, having incredible access to journalism, insights, opinions, essays, even recipes, all the stuff that you hear on our podcast, and so much more. For a few more days, we have an offer going, especially for podcast listeners. $59 total for a two-year digital subscription to The Washington Post. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe or find a link in today's show notes. And thank you so much. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.